Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. In the Bible, we're given a progressive revelation about God, which culminates in Christ. And so this means that the earlier parts of the Bible, they may contain an obscure understanding or an understanding that we need to look at in light of Christ. Because Christ is our interpretive frame for the whole Bible. And this is the explanation that Jesus himself gives. He's saying that we need to see the whole thing through the light of who he is. Look at John chapter 5 verse 39 and following. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father, The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so this is the point that I'm going to make with an appeal to several scriptures, that Jesus is the fullness of revelation, the perfection of revelation, Everything that makes God, God. We know who God is through Christ. As Michael Ramsey has put it, God is Christ-like, and in him is no unchrist-likeness at all. And so we understand who God is through Christ, and not who Christ is through God. Or as C.S. Lewis once said, Jesus is what the Father has to say to us. Jesus is not part of what the Father has to say, or even the main thing the Father has to say. He is what the Father has to say. He is the one and only Word of God, as John 1.1 puts it. Jesus is the total content of the Father's revelation to us. This means that if there is a difference between the Old Testament portrayal of God and the New Testament, we are to do what Jesus said. We are to understand the old through the new. We do not understand Jesus on the basis of the Old Testament, but we understand the Old Testament, Moses, the prophets, through who Christ is. And of course, that's what Jesus explains to the two on the road to Emmaus. It says that he opened the scriptures and showed how he is the interpretive key of the Bible. And so the God of the Old Testament 
He commands the Jews, for example, to slaughter every living creature. He tells soldiers, you know, to take Midianite virgin women captive and then slaughter everybody else. He specifies that Amalekite children, infants, and women are to be slaughtered. He commands the disobedient children, if they're prone to eating too much or drinking too much, he says, well, they should be stoned to death. He portrays himself using the instrument of Babylonian warriors against Israel. And it even says that there is an indiscriminate slaying of the righteous and unrighteous. We could just go through and describe many passages in the Old Testament that I think bear quite a striking difference to the person of Christ, who is a gentle shepherd, who defeats death rather than deals in death, who is a rest for the weary, who is so gentle as Matthew says, quoting the Old Testament, as to not break a bruised reed, who commands any form of violent resistance or any type of violent thoughts to be banished. He insists upon loving the enemy. As Lord of the universe, you know, this is what Jesus is going to say in John 13. He says, knowing that the Father has given all things into his hands, what does he do next? He washes the disciples' feet. And so it's precisely at the moment when Jesus has conquered, he's defeated the powers that he demonstrates complete humility. And of course, that's the picture of the prodigal son. It's really a picture of God's relationship to the sinner. That he comes running out to meet the prodigal son as he returns. And even when Jesus, in his moment of glory, he comes riding into Jerusalem, he comes gentle, riding on a donkey. He does not inflict violence or death, but in fact we find him weeping at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He heals the blind, the lame. He raises the dead. He commands Peter to put away his sword and he bears the lash and torment of violent men and ultimately dies a torturous death. That's who God is in Christ. And this sharp contrast, often a sharp contrast between parts of the Old Testament and who Christ is, I think how we deal with that contrast is going to determine our understanding of Christianity. It's going to be an insight even into our own understanding of the world and ourselves. That is that what we do, there's a great deal in the Old Testament that indicates we need to look to Christ to understand it. It indicates what should be done. What do we do with violence? Do we justify it? Do we ignore it? Or do we understand that it's put away in Christ? And so what one does with the former picture of God in light of the latter picture, I think is the very point of revelation. That is, we're not supposed to ignore it. We're not supposed to harmonize it. But I think we're supposed to see this contrast and we're not supposed to reconcile, you know, say, oh, well, maybe the Old Testament is about the Father and the New Testament is about the Son. 
And so you get a kind of dualistic understanding of God as if God is the angry, violent God in the Father and the compassionate, loving God in the Son. I think that's exactly wrong. God is not split within himself. And no matter the extremes that we might go to explain this violence, some people might say, oh, it's just a kind of hyperbolic or it's a temporary thing. I think that the tendency to justify the violence, the danger is we'll presume it's necessary for God. And God, we know in Christ it's not necessary at all. And certainly we don't want to do, you know, this was the early heresy of Marcion. He said, well, the Old Testament is not worthy of the God of the New Testament. And so he just cut his Bible in two. And he said, let's get rid of that first half. Or maybe people reject God because of the portrayal given in the Old Testament. But I think that we need to take a long, hard look at this contrast and not turn away and not skip over what we might think is unworthy of God in light of Christ. Because I think dwelling on the contrast is part of recognizing the significance of who God is in Christ, of recognizing the final and full revelation of God. This is the way that Jesus identifies himself. He says about John the Baptist, there is no greater than John in all of the history of the Old Testament. He's the greatest. But then he says in John 5:36, the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. So clearly there is progression. There is an unfolding progress culminating in Jesus. You know, first it culminates in John. He says there's no greater. But then the revelation of Christ completes this progress. As the writer of Hebrews describes, what came before Christ in 10.1, he says, was a shadow. But not the full reality. The full reality came only in Christ. To blend the two things as if they bore equal weight will reduce the reality to its shadow. Or it will relinquish the fullness of the gospel. You know, the idea of fullness, of perfection, it's complete. And so the thesis of Hebrews, look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son. J.B. Phillips translates this, you know, many ways. He says the, the many portions here, it could be he's given us glimpses of truth in the Old Testament, but now we have the fullness of truth. The previous message would not even hold up and we say in a court of law that it's the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth what the writer of Hebrews is saying no this is a glimpse of the truth this is a portion the implication of the difference which the writer of Hebrews draws out is summarized I think in this opening verse but this is really this what Hebrews is doing he's going to talk about these previous messengers, they lacked the glory. 
They lacked even what it represented, you know, whether it was God, life, salvation, none of these things were fulfilled. It lacked substance. It's, he's going to say the Israelites died in the wilderness. It lacked coherence. It lacked power. It did not challenge sin. We could say it lacked reality. And so to suggest that the previous message, it's not just partly mistaken or wrong. It's not getting at the profundity of the difference. It's not simply that God gave a message, oh, well, it was distorted, you know, in some way. But I think what is being described is the whole world was distorted. As if the very field of gravity, that which holds all things together, has been disrupted. And that's what the writer of Hebrews, as he's describing the significance of the revelation in Christ, in verse 2 to 3 he says, about the new messenger in comparison to the old, Christ is the one whom he appointed heir of all things. He's the one through whom he has made the world and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and he upholds all things by the word of his power. This is the kind of revelation that is required because of the distortion of the world. The world distorted by sin and violence and death, it cannot be undistorted by new information. What is needed is new creation. And that's what's being depicted. The problem of the message of the fathers and the prophets. Certainly it concerned the message, but it concerned the messengers, but it also concerned their whole world. And what is needed is of cosmic proportions. And that's what Jesus, that's the way he's describing this one who holds all things together. And so it's not simply information about God, but the very nature of God, the very nature of truth, the very nature of the world are disrupted. They suffer from distortion isn't this the message of the New Testament? Apart from Christ. Jesus says this. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know the Father as well. You know, this is the point when Philip says, oh, Jesus, why don't you show us the Father? And he says, well, you've seen the Father if you've seen me. To imagine that you know God apart from Christ, oh, you know God on the basis of the Hebrew scriptures, Jesus says, well, that would be like mistaking the evidence for the reality. He says, well, the testimony of Moses, the testimony of the law, that was about me. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me. And so what is at stake in this misidentification is to take the testimony as if it's the thing itself. It's to mistake the evidence pointing to God as if it's God himself. It is to imagine, as Paul says, you take a dead letter instead of the living word, which is Christ. 
And so partial truth, glimpses of the truth, certainly that's better than no truth, but only the Son, only Christ, is the truth itself. And so God cannot be discerned in shadows or partial truth. But as Jesus explains to Philip, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, you know, show us the Father? And Jesus, as the way, the truth, and the life, he resolves the distortion problem. He resolves the sin problem. He resolves the problem of the law of sin and death. But as Hebrews explains the previous message, this is here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8 to 9. The previous message is shaped by this distortion. After saying above, he quotes Isaiah, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices you have not desired. Did you hear what I just said? I'm just reading the Bible here. He's quoting the prophet, and this is a theme in the prophets. God never wanted any sacrifices. That's something that you did. And God accommodated that. Nor have, has God, he says, taken pleasure in them. Even though, and this is just the note the writer puts in here, even though these are offered according to the law. But then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. And of course, it's a messianic prophecy. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. And the writer puts in the mouth of Jesus the long, you know, this is a counter-prophetic tradition. It's there in several of the Old Testament prophets, which explains that God did not want sacrifices and offerings. And the notion that he enjoyed their smell or that he delighted in the slaughter. That's denied. It says he finds no pleasure in them. Though sacrifice is offered according to the law. The law is not identified with the will of God. That's just there in Hebrews. In fact, Christ, it says, the one who has come to do his will, exposes the false premise upon which the law is built. The writer explains in 8.7, For if the first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion for a second. There was something wrong with the first covenant. It dealt in shadows. It did not penetrate to the heart and mind. It left these untouched. You know, that's what's said again and again, that the law needs to be written on the heart, and the old covenant didn't do that. It falsely purported to establish a relationship with God. It didn't do that. And for these reasons, in chapter 8, verse 13, it's declared obsolete. It will disappear. And this declaration of the faulty nature of the law and its need for correction, that's the ministry of Jesus, right? That's just what Jesus teaches again and again. He says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, you know, he'll just say that repeatedly. He's not supplementing the law. He's not adding to it. But he's saying we need to get rid of parts of it. A great deal of ink in the Old Testament was spilt describing clean and unclean foods. Look at what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. 
He said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but his stomach, and then it's eliminated. It's just talking about digestion. This has nothing to do with spirituality, Jesus is saying. And then the note is put, Mark, this is Mark's note, this is not my note. Thus he declared all foods clean. And so he's saying the failure of the food laws, that's like the failure of the sacrificial system. Maybe it's like the failure of the law in general. They do not change either the heart or mind. They do not pertain to spirituality. Same thing with the Sabbath laws, right? Keeping the Sabbath holy, the fourth commandment. That was punishable by death. It was very serious. Even in Numbers it says a man went out on the Sabbath and he was gathering up wood and they stoned him to death because he's breaking the law. And the presumption of the law is that since God rested, this is in both Exodus 16 and Exodus 20, that the Sabbath then is celebrated because of his rest. We're commemorating his rest. But Jesus questions the very premise of the Sabbath law. He says the Sabbath in Mark 2.27 was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And so this is the controversy that Jesus will continually have with the Pharisees. Whether it was healing on the Sabbath or picking grain on the Sabbath, Jesus presumed he was not constrained by the Sabbath law. And this is what he says in Mark 2.28, The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so Jesus is going to interfere. He's going to contravene. He's going to again and again, you know, think of the woman taken in adultery. The law says we stone her. And he changes that up. He said, oh, okay, well, the first one that's without sin, you cast the first stone. He declared the law of oath-taking from Deuteronomy 6. Jesus says that we are not to make oaths at all. And he declares that more than yes or no comes from the evil one. Matthew 5.37. Wait a minute. But it says in the Old Testament to swear and to promise. And Jesus says, no. He pronounces, you remember James and John? And they went to the cities of Samaria and they rejected Jesus. And James and John says, well, let's call down fire from heaven and destroy these cities. They had good Old Testament precedent because Elijah used fire. In fact, maybe in that very region to kill a hundred people. Some text here says, well, that was from a different spirit. And of course, the implication, that wasn't God. He directly contradicts and undoes. You know, the whole series of laws, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth laws. He says, no more will it be an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you in Matthew 5, and this is the whole of Matthew, he goes through, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Where the Old Testament presumes, you know, wealth, that's a sign of blessing, right? Jesus says, no, he pronounces a curse on the rich. 
Where the Old Testament, if you have victory in battle, isn't that a sign of divine blessing? Jesus presumes that it's only the nonviolent peacemakers who are the children of God. Greg Boyd concludes that to follow Jesus and be considered a child of the Father, one has to be willing to violate this Old Testament law. Indeed, Jesus taught that to be considered a child of the Father, a person has to commit to doing the exact opposite of what this law commands. And the implication, you know, in light of Jesus' command to refrain from violence, to love one's enemies, is that Jesus contradicts. He displaces the portrayal of God. He undoes the Old Testament ethics. And he concludes, we have compelling reasons to interpret the entire Mosaic law together with the law-oriented portrait of God to be an accommodation. That God accommodated that understanding, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Isn't that what Paul says? The price of that accommodation, I believe, explains what happens to Jesus. Jesus embodies the truth, right? Of the Old Testament, of the law. And yet he encounters in the high priest, the Jews, the protectors, the keepers of what they thought was the law. It sets them against Christ. You know, who is them? Well, it's the priests, it's the chief Jews, it's the Sanhedrin, it's the Pharisees. Not to simply say it's the Jews, because it's also Rome, it's also Pilate. But they saw Jesus as a threat to their religion, and a threat to their law, to their temple. This is going to come up at his trial. Though he was the fulfillment, the completion of the law, he was the true temple. He was the glory of God. The price of accommodating sin, because that's really what happened, right? Sin is accommodated in the law. And there was a distortion that made God, Christ is God incarnate, and they do not recognize him. Though every Jew understood that when Jesus says the love of God, the love of neighbor, that's the summation of the law. That's the two great commands. But this love was also distorted beyond recognition. And Jesus concludes that they cannot recognize the word of God. And he says this in Mark 7, because of their traditions. But actually the traditions are a reference to the law. You know, that was where we quoted the food laws. It's also other traditions like Corbin, where they would take their parents' money and keep it for themselves and say, well, we're dedicating it to God. As Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians, the law and the old covenant in 3, 13 to 14, he says they veil or they obscure reality and it creates a dullness of mind. And Christ lifts the veil. That's the picture, right? He undoes the obscuring effect of the law. And the law and Jesus' critique, it concentrated on non sequiturs. It doesn't matter what goes into a man, but it's what comes out of him that matters. 
And yet the law accommodated every form of human violence. And this violence was projected onto God so that even the purpose, the center of love, of God, was made indistinguishable, impossible. And of course to imagine that the law is the problem, the law is not the problem. It's human sinfulness that is the real problem. And so the distortion of God posed in some places, the distortion of love, the distortion of ethics, this distortion often codified in the law. It stands in sharp, irreconcilable contrast with the truth of God in Christ. And this difference, this contrast, is what killed him, right? This difference, this curse of the law, Paul says, is sin itself. And to cover over this difference, to live with the dullness of mind induced by the obscuring of the law, to rid oneself, you know, to imagine there's no difference, is to miss the cross of Christ. This is why he died. The cross is the final and full revelation of God in contrast to the law of sin and death. And it is on the cross that he bore this difference. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. The difference between the law that killed him, the curse of the law to be hung on a tree, and the truth of the law, unadulterated love, the difference between sin and love is the difference he bore. By doing so, Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Where the power and wisdom of the world puts people on crosses and equates this violence done to the enemy as redemptive. It equates this redemptive violence with salvation. Christ bears this curse. And it is. It's specifically the curse of capital punishment. Deuteronomy 21 that describes, this is what Paul is quoting, the curse of the law. It's sanctioned homicide. The curse of the law sanctions lawful execution. The curse of the law sanctions holy war. The curse of crosses. That's what Christ bore. His death is an act of love. Not because he bore the legal weight of sin, but because the violence done to him in the name of the law, of God, of the nation, was itself sin. It was sinful men who killed him under the guise of the law, under the guise of their religion. He is afflicted with the core of evil. I believe that's what's happening in the cross of Christ. The goodness of God is taking on the evil of men. And this religious violence carried out in the name of God is the core of evil. And in his divine identity, he exposed the fact God is not on the side of Herod. 
He's not on the side of Pilate. He's not on the side of the Jews. He's not on the side of the law. But God in Christ is their victim. God is not the one who victimizes and oppresses. He is not the one who commits genocide or the one who approves of slavery or sexual assault in some of those pictures or the one who slaughters infants. God is the one who rescues the victims of murder, oppression, and assault by identifying with them. John states it. He sums it up. God is love. And the love of God is enacted in what Christ did. 1 John 3.16 We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This passage, you know, into self-sacrificial love, it entails, as John describes it, passage out of death and into life. Out of a lie and into the truth. I guess there is an inevitable kind of cognitive dissonance in recognizing this contrast because it's the contrast we are called to recognize. It recognizes how deeply ingrained our world with its law and religion is in the lie that Christ exposes as the truth. But this is the dissonance of revelation. This is the difference of inspiration. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.